0: Thanks so much guys. Aren't Matt and Rhianne just lovely? So warm and so friendly. Um, How did you last respond when you were asked the question, how are you doing? It's funny, this simple question is now enough to provoke existential crisis within us. Um, by all likelihood, you probably weren't asked uh, by a person, you know, like actually in person in front of you. It's probably a WhatsApp message that came through. Maybe you didn't know how to put it in words, so you just sent the skull and crossbones emoji back to them. Or maybe your life is so hectic, so you're so rushed off your feet, you're, you're trying to hold down your job, homeschool, do everything, that you wish you had time to respond to that question. You, you just got loads of those those blobs next to your WhatsApp conversations of people asking you questions that you just haven't had the time and don't have the energy to get back to them. Or maybe you can relate to a couple of words that I've been using um, as I've tried to work out how am I actually feeling at this time or feeling claustrophobic and disoriented. However you're feeling I think we can probably agree that there's never been a time where our stock go-to answer of I'm fine, how are you? Has ever been less appropriate. We've actually had to think about our answer. Don't you long for the days where you can just say, I'm fine and actually mean it. But in this new teaching series that we're gonna be looking at, I want to, uh, I think that we're gonna start to delve into a compelling proposition in God's word. That our answer to this question might start to become, yeah, life is crazy. My house is an absolute mess. I haven't left my bedroom for 29 weeks. But on a deep level, I'm, I'm actually flourishing. That life is, is full. I'm, I'm doing actually really good. That in the midst of the whirlwind that we find ourselves in, in the very deepest seat of our being, in our what the bible calls our hearts or actually a a more accurate translation of the hebrew would be down in our kidneys and i'd absolutely love that that we would be able to say actually i'm more alive than ever This is the invitation of Jesus in his words on the Sermon on the Mount. And this is going to be a 13-week teaching series that we're going to be in through this spring and and just touching at the beginning of the summer over the next few months. And so I'm going to be setting the scene over the next uh, few weeks or so. And then you'll be happy to hear that there's going to be a bunch of different people from Revelation Church and actually from outside of our family sharing in this series as well as we dive into it. And the sermon covers all of Matthew chapter 5, 6 and 7, so it's a long sermon that Jesus delivers and it's likely, I would have thought, that you're familiar with it, at least in part, no matter what your experience of church, your experience of the Bible, because parts of it have crept into our society. You will hear the phrase, do unto others as you would have done to you, ringing out through primary school hallways across the land. And as a parent of two young children, I can testify that there is an entire sub-industry of children's songwriters and authors that are absolutely dedicated to the story of the wise man who had built his house upon the rock in Matthew chapter 7. And yet, despite this familiarity with it, as the scholar John Stott would say, these are some of the best known teachings of Jesus, but also the least Understood teachings of Jesus. It's a sermon that is not immediately appealing to us in things that we might want to hear. It creates tension and confusion within us. And and actually, if you like, you can find many different interpretations of what Jesus says that seek to water down what he says or avoid some of its implications. In fact, the Orthodox Jew Pinchas Lapide uh, said that the history of the impact of the Sermon on the Mount can be largely described in terms of an attempt to domesticate everything in it that is shocking, demanding and uncompromising and render it harmless. To domesticate everything in it to render it harmless, he says. And to be honest, when you read through it, I think that is pretty understandable because it is hard on our ears. It offends all of our sensibilities, particularly those sensibilities that I know we all have of I would just want a comfortable, relaxed Christian life. But as we allow ourselves over this series to hear Jesus's words in all of their robust, rugged, undiluted form, my hope is that the more we see them as they really are, the more we allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, the more we embrace the tension of them and allow life as we know it to be confronted by Jesus the more that we will see the Sermon on the Mount as it truly is. That it is a gracious, life-giving invitation to us. An invitation not just to obedience, not just to morality, but in this sermon, Jesus is laying before us an invitation to flourishing, to live life as it is meant to be, lived. This is the whole message of the sermon and Jesus gets straight into it as to how he begins. So I'm calling today's message part one of our series The Great Invitation and we are going to begin to see exactly what it is that Jesus offers to his hearers and we will begin to see how we can start to posture our hearts and our lives and our attitudes and our thinking towards all that he has to offer to us. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to read from verses 1 to 6. So if you've got a Bible, do turn there, read along with me. Um, the words should also be appearing on the screen as well. So let me read verse, chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the crowds, he, that's Jesus, went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them And right here, Jesus is at the height of his popularity. You, you can read just before in the verses, just leading into verse uh, chapter 5, that Jesus is healing people, he's, he's casting out demonic spirit, and his fame is spreading far and wide. People are coming from all over to, to see him and be with him and to witness his signs and to be healed by him. And the masses are truly coming. And as Jesus recognises, hey, people are coming, as we saw in verse 1, seeing these crowds, he then takes the opportunity to get up on a mountain and teach them. And likely this wasn't actually a mountain that he got on, just a very high hill or something like that. And he he went up there simply to get a bit of uh, a way in which he can cast his voice over a number of people and he starts to teach them. And there's a little bit of debate over, was this a single sermon that Jesus delivered? Or was it just a bunch of Various teachings that Matthew's clumped together and called it a sermon And I think the way that it's structured and the way that it reads it certainly is meant to sound like a single sermon And I think the easiest way that we can understand it is that this was a sermon that Jesus delivered a number of times Probably over a course of a number of hours And so Matthew would have heard it so many times and as one of Jesus' disciples hearing this core teaching It would have been so in him That actually it was a fairly straightforward task for Matthew to sit down, pick out his edited highlights and the things that are really at the heart of what Jesus wanted to say and structure it in the way that it was delivered and write it down. And the way that it begins is exactly as we've read it with these blessed are statements. There's nine of them. We just read out four of them. And these are commonly known as something called the Beatitudes coming from the Latin word for happy which gives us a bit of an understanding of of what Jesus is trying to get to. But this isn't just the beginning of the sermon. This This is Jesus setting the tone for the whole message that he's going to be delivering across these three chapters and and the rest of the sermon actually in some ways is a a bit of an expansion or an exposition of these condensed sayings that Jesus would say remember they didn't many of them didn't read and write at this point and so they would they would want these these pithy things that they could remember and and then just carry around with them that then when they remembered them brought to mind the rest of Jesus's teaching and so to understand the sermon as a whole is to understand exactly what's going on in some of these Beatitudes and it hinges on this word that we see at the beginning, the word blessed and I have behind me 10 different commentaries of scholars talking about uh, the Sermon on the Mount and each and every one of them say that this word this Greek word that is translated here blessed in Greek makarios is a tricky word to Uh, to translate some one of them called it a blessed problem trying to translate this word and the reason is simply because It is it contained within it for the original hearers. it was loaded with meaning it was loaded with Significance that they had lived with and understood that we just don't have a direct translation for it and so when they heard this word It brought to mind all kinds of different things. Your translation might have happy or something similar. There's just more at play than that. What is at work here? Is the idea that we can, there is a way of living, living out our whole lives in a way that as we live them out in that way will lead to a truly good or truly blessed life. To be Makarios, is to live out a way of being in the world that will lead to flourishing in God. And to understand its significance, we have to understand exactly where the people of God are at this point. It is a confusing time for them. Contrary to what we might think of them at this time, uh, the Jewish people, by and large, they really loved God. They were incredibly devoted to him and they trusted their God. They knew that he was the God that they had read about and heard about in their history, the God of blessing, the God of abundance, the God who wanted them to do well. They saw it in their story, but it had been a long time since the high point of David's kingdom and all of the blessings that the the nation of Israel knew then. And since then, they had been a people that had gone into exile. They've returned from exile to their land and they were a humbled people. And yet they remained convinced they knew that there is a God-ordered, God-ordained way of living in this world. A way of being, of living out life that, that is makarios, that will lead to us being blessed and, and being, having a good life and flourishing. And yet, what complicated the matter even further was that you might know the Jewish nation at this point were occupied by the Romans. Which meant that Greek philosophy was spreading like wildfire. And so you had Aristotle's thoughts, you had Plato's thoughts, you had all kinds of other various different musings on life. And you know the question they were asking at that point? Their whole thinking was centered around the idea of exactly the same word. Exactly the idea of makarios. How can mankind truly be happy? How can mankind live a good life? How can they flourish? And you know the unique twist of the the Greco-Roman thinking is they were saying you could have all this you can have a flourishing life you can have a good life but you don't need God it was a movement away from a God-centered life to a man-centered life of we can have a flourishing life but we don't need to depend on God for it and it is into this competing clashing worldview and ideology of of God wants us to live a flourishing life but how can we do it and we want to experience a good life do we even need God in it it's right into that that Jesus comes in and authoritatively pronounces these beatitudes and says this is the life this is the way this is how you can have the happy life that you've been searching for this is the description and the pathway to the blessed life, the question that is on everybody's lips. Jonathan Pennington in his commentary on the Beatitudes says that in this, in the, on the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in the Beatitudes, Jesus is declaring with authority, what is the true way of being that will result in happiness and human flourishing? These are Jesus's answer to the universal philosophical question, how can one be truly happy? This is the foundation of Jesus' teaching here. He is not appealing to living in the way that we are going to read throughout the whole sermon and the, 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 the various things that he's asking of his people. He's not appealing to say simply, this is just the right thing to do, or even saying, live this way Primarily because it will be pleasing to God. Now, Jesus's appeal here is this is the best life for you. This is the happy life, the satisfying, good, flourishing life. This whole sermon is Jesus coming in and cutting through false life scripts, worldviews, opinions of how we can optimise our own flourishing or what that might look like or or blessedness or true satisfaction. The question that is on all of our lips or certainly at the, the deepest desire of our heart, Jesus coming in and saying, this is the way. We get a sense of this from the reaction right at the end of the sermon of the the crowds. If you turn to to chapter 7, verse 28, you you can read along with me. I'll read it out. This is the end of the sermon. It says, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowd were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. You notice what's going on here? These are the crowds that are listening in, not the disciples. So he was teaching the disciples, but the crowds, people that weren't yet his followers, were listening in. And they were attracted because of what he had done, but yet they hear his teaching and they're astonished by his teaching. And as a result, begin to actually follow him. Now, this doesn't necessarily mean that they were converted just like that, on the spot, fully made disciples, but... Clearly, the teaching that they are hearing is inspiring them, it's captivating them, it's it's invitational, it's drawing them in, it's appealing to the desires of their hearts and giving them a compelling vision of a way of living that will actually lead to blessing and to flourishing. And it may not seem that as we first read it, it seems like when you read through the whole thing that Jesus is just stacking up a list of demands against us and exhorting us to do things that aren't going to get us very far in life at all. Rather than casting a vision for the good life, it seems like he's casting a vision for the the miserable life or certainly the impossible life, giving our money away, forgiving people who don't deserve to be forgiven. Or perhaps the most challenging, voluntarily giving up food you think how on earth could that be flourishing how is that good for me and this is where we are going to find this sermon is going to challenge us challenge us and push us right to the very limits that we'll think surely that cannot be If we read this and we refuse to domesticate Jesus's words, it is going to offend us. It's going to directly challenge and confront the very way that we think the world is and should be. He is gonna ask us to do things and to be things that every fiber of our being is screaming out, that will make my life worse. And Jesus is gonna say, no, that will make your life better. And at every turn, we are gonna be asked the question and have to search our own souls to say, do we, do we trust Jesus? Are we going to believe in his vision, his way of what our lives should be? And perhaps the ultimate question underlying it all Are we going to allow Jesus to define what good, happy, blessed, flourishing looks like for us? Because that is exactly what he is doing in the Beatitudes. He is not just giving in the beginning of chapter 5, he's not just giving a path to flourishing, he is redefining what flourishing even is. Again, Jonathan Pennington, in his commentary, calls the Beatitudes black gold. I just love that phrase. He says that contained within it is something beautiful, something to be prized, something to be cherished. But when you first look at it, it is darkness. It is the very opposite of everything that we think flourishing is. There is actually when we on first appearance, some of these things they are anti flourishing. I don't know about you. I imagine you're probably quite similar to me. But I am an expert, a world expert in telling Jesus what I need to be happy. I am very good at pointing out all of the areas of lack in my life, the extra thing that I need that Jesus, if you were to add this in, then I will truly start flourishing. And usually, I find that they are centered around more comfort, more ease, more leisure, more evenings off, more time to relax, more time for me, more time for holidays. Do you remember that word? And it is directly at this point that the Beatitudes come and confront us. They ask us the question what if that isn't what you need? What if actually it is the very opposite thing that you need in order to flourish. We need to allow some of these things to to confront us, I think. Let me read some of them again. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Remember what we said at the top, Jesus is saying here essentially flourishing, living the good life, are the poor in spirit, those who mourn, those who are meek, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now these are descriptions of states that we spend an awful lot of our time, energy and resources trying to avoid. They are positions of Not more comfort, not more ease, not more leisure. Positions of discomfort, positions of lacking, positions even of suffering. And it is those that Jesus singles out and says, in my order, these are the ones that are fitting my definition of flourishing. Notice blessed are, and these are the ones that will continue to flourish. Those whose spirits have been broken. Those who are mourning. So those who have lost something significant. Those who are meek. You might might have humble in your translation. People who have a true, realistic view of themselves and recognise what it is they do not have. Those that hunger and thirst. So people who are desperately realising They are a people who lack and yet as much as we try and avoid these things and perhaps try and convince ourselves that we aren't these people or convince others certainly that we're not these people I think actually if we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with other people this is us broken worn out empty people I actually had quite a profound realization myself this week um, as I was praying and spending time with God. I realized I have spent a lot of this time, a lot of the time of this pandemic, trying to hold it together. And I came to a realization, there was a sense of dis ease in my soul that I couldn't quite pin down. And I, I realized before God, I am more broken by this pandemic than I realized. I'm more. Exhausted, more confused. I'm carrying far more pain than I realised. As I said at the top, I'm more disoriented by it. I wonder if you can relate to some of that. Has the pandemic in some way broken your spirit? Given you cause for mourning? Has it felt like a humbling of some sense. It's awoken within you a a desperation in your soul of you realize just how much you lack. Well it's this kind of person, this kind of person that Jesus opens up his grand vision of what the life of human flourishing really looks like. He says blessedness is not just managing to hold it all together. That's not who he commends. Those that have got a good handle on life. No, he says blessedness is coming to a realization before God that we're broken. Broken on our knees before him, desperately hungry. That is flourishing true human flourishing is not making the most of our academic potential, not scoring that dream job in Manchester city centre, not that dream of a perfectly harmonious house with kids who are perfectly behaved and a spouse who adores you unendingly. No, Jesus is bringing about here a radical redefinition of the good life. He's saying the good life is the one who has been continually bruised, battered and broken by this world, who keeps coming to an end of themselves constantly aware of what they lack. That's flourishing, that's blessedness, that is the good life, that is Makarios. And as we embrace this brokenness, we become to know more of the deep and profound mystery that somehow this truly is blessedness and somehow will lead to true, further true blessedness. It's the comprehensive nature of these blessings that should truly draw us in. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For they shall be comforted. For they shall inherit the earth for they shall be satisfied without going into each one of these individually these four taken as a whole are are simply blessings that span the whole of the created experience there are blessings here that will be seen blessings that are unseen the wounds of every hurting heart healed the desires of every empty heart filled they are blessings that are stored up for us to experience in our eternal future and blessings to be experienced now. These are not the blessings of a simply a man on a mountaintop that has some morality to dish out. These are the blessings of a king proclaiming the coming of his kingdom. And you may have noticed that term kingdom of heaven. In verse three, it means the same as kingdom of God, if you've come across that. And we'll see it throughout this sermon as we go through it and continually refer to this this theme of the kingdom of God that Jesus is bringing in. Last term, as we made our way through the book of Revelation at the end of it, we saw this kingdom of God and saw that right now we are a people waiting for this kingdom. We are waiting for Jesus to return, waiting for the new creation, waiting for that city that is filled with the glory of God, waiting for that moment where we will see our King face to face and be with him, the truly undiluted blessed blessed life and the pinnacle of human flourishing. But yet we see here that as Jesus announces the arrival of his kingdom, we are invited to begin to enjoy the blessings of that future kingdom, the very same future kingdom that we looked at last term. We're invited to begin to enjoy that today, now. We can begin to be the inheritors of all things. We can begin to have our wounds comforted. We can begin to have our hearts filled. If only we will come to him broken Listen to his words. He's his commands. And so the internal disruption that we feel as we hear Jesus's words in this sermon, they're not just some challenging prospects and ideas. It is the disruption of an in-breaking kingdom, of a whole new world order coming in, a kingdom that is not of this world, breaking in on our lives that have been so thoroughly formed and shaped by the values of this world coming in to try and redefine and reorder how we think and how we perceive to liberate us and bring us out of the the dead ends and the emptiness of the kingdom of this age and and all of its false claims to to happiness and satisfaction and the paths it would try and lead us down To lead us into and invite us into the only kingdom that can truly deliver on that promise. Truly deliver the deepest desires of all human hearts. The question on everybody's lips. How can I have a life that flourishes? And so next week as we continue to look at the black gold of the Beatitudes. And as we go on throughout the whole sermon, we are constantly going to be confronted by this very invitation. The invitation into a flourishing life that is at once so gracious and so kind and yet completely disruptive to us. One of the questions that is occupying or ideas that's occupying a lot of our minds at the moment is the idea of going back to life as it was before the pandemic. But as we finish just now, I just want to ask you, pre-pandemic, was your life really flourishing? Was life really working how you would want it to or would dream that it would? would? Was your life really on a path towards the inner satisfaction that you want? And was it really going to deliver? Rather than fixing our eyes on a vision of life as it once was. Let's let's be a people that hear Jesus's invitation here. A family that listen to these words of Jesus and we fix our eyes not on what once was, but on a vision of life as Jesus would have us live. And so this morning, I want us to begin to embrace this kingdom life that is on offer by embracing our brokenness and to begin to be a people that enter into the kingdom by coming before him as ones who know we lack, that we are humble and we're a desperate people